Anne Friedman is a journalist who writes about gender, media, politics, and culture. You can find her writing at nymag.com and the Los Angeles Times, where she is a regular contributor. She's also a contributing editor to The Gentlewoman and writes sporadically for outlets like California Sunday, The New Republic, The New York Times Book Review, Elle, and The Guardian. But that's not all. Anne also co-hosts the podcast Call Your Girlfriend, and she sends a weekly email newsletter, of which I am a huge fan. I really think that um, being obsessed with books and reading and other people's stories has had a huge impact on pretty much every aspect of my life. I'm Gail Marie, host and creator of The Spine, the only podcast where writers get to talk about their reading lives and only their reading lives. Thank you for listening. Let's get right to my conversation with Anne Friedman. Well, thank you so much for joining me on The Spine, Anne. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, the first question that I typically ask all of my guests is, where did your reading life start? And I kind of want to just dig into, you know, your favorite childhood um, reading memories, whether it's particular books or authors or memories of a parent reading to you or a sibling or whatever, wherever you want to start. Um, yeah, I mean, my childhood was completely defined by books. Mm. Um, <laughs> I, I really don't remember what you know, the first things I loved to read were, but I definitely remember from a very early age reading whatever I could. So like every word on the back of the cereal box, Mm -hmm. like every sign around town, that sort of thing. Um, I, uh, the library in my hometown in Iowa, the children's card had a max, uh, number of 10 books per week that you could check out. And I remember, frequently begging my mother to let me use her card, which contained a limit of 20 um, books. And I ha- I definitely have memories of like leaving with, you know, from my hands all the way up to my chin, a stack of books. Um, yeah. And yeah. And so like, I truly, it, it is not like, oh, here is one book that really shaped the course of my childhood or something like that. It really was like, I, I just went through whatever, whatever I could get. Right. Um, yeah. And, and I really think that it is a large reason why I am who I am today. And not just because my profession involves words, but you know, my political beliefs and where I choose to live and what I'm interested in. And I really think that, um, being obsessed with books and reading and other people's stories has had a huge impact on pretty much every aspect of my life. Sure. Do you, were your parents big readers? Were there books around the house? I mean, if your mom was taking you to the library, obviously she was a reader. My parents understood how important reading was and how important reading was to me in particular. And, you know, they both were at our college educated people. We got the local newspaper, but they were not readers. Like I did not see my parents reading. Okay. Um, my mom later, like when I was in college, I think started a book club and now she's always reading something and we talk about books. But when I was a kid, um, I never saw her with a book once. Like I, I can't, other than like a Bible or like a kind of like Catholic study book. Right. Um, I did not see her. I didn't never, I never saw my mother read for pleasure. Um, And, you know, we had some like John Grisham laying around, which I definitely read at an inappropriate age because it was what was there. Um, But, you know, like truly like religious prayer books, like how to get deeper into your Catholicism books, 
Bibles. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, the occasional kind of like super popular fiction. Um, and sometimes I wonder like what I would have been like if I had been raised by people who, um, at least at the time I was a kid really identified as readers and kept books around. Because when I think about that age, when I had a lot of time on my hands and Mm -hmm. was just desperate for anything to read, like what would have happened if I would have had like, you know, literary classics within my reach, you know, as opposed to just whatever was in the like YA section at the library. Um, so yeah, so the answer is like people who valued reading but didn't practice it a lot were my was my upbringing, my parents. Okay. Um so who who steered you towards some of the books that um made a you know more of an impression on you as a child? Was it a librarian or a friend or a teacher? I mean, I definitely remember librarians suggesting books for me. Um, like a lot of kids, I read a lot of series. So then you could just like burn through the 70 books, you know, the 70 ghost written babysitters club books or whatever, you know? Um, or I, I also like would read everything by a certain author, you know, like a Lois Lowry or like, um, you know, Mm -hmm. like a lot of kind of like seventies and like, like YA novelists. Um, I think that like, like the series that were, um, that like were already kind of not contemporaneous with the time I was growing up in and often were set like in New York or in like a college town somewhere on the East coast. I used to like, um, Lois Lowry's Anastasia Krupnik books were like this point of, I mean, I loved reading all of her work, but, um, those books in particular, like, you know, she was this kind of bookwormy, precocious Mm -hmm. kid whose mother was an artist and whose father was a professor and they lived in a, this brick multi-story house with books everywhere. And I was just like, what a fantasy, (laughs) like truly what a fantasy to have, to have parents who were like artists and like book people and live in a, in a two-story brick building in a city. Um, like a lot, you know, like a lot of it was, was just that, like, what would my life be like, you know, somewhere else? Like a lot of books around about, girls my age living lives that I was more interested in than my own. Right. Harriet the Spy. I loved Harriet the Spy. And I also loved there is like a a book that is, I think that it would be fair to call it a spinoff, though I haven't read it in years, about, I think it's about her friend, Sport, who's like, finds out he's a multimillionaire and like runs away to live in a hotel. Like, (laughs) you know, the genre of book that is like kids... Be living independently from adults mm-hmm. and not in like an apocalyptic way. Like I like not in a kind of dystopian way, but in a, like there's some, some weird twist of fate and you get to essentially live as an adult. Like those were my ultimate fantasy escapism. I've always just wanted to be an adult. Right. Like, <laughs> like so, the peanuts, right? Like yes. Snoopy and the peanuts. Like, yes, except like, you know, the thing about, um, or like, you know, the mixed up files of Mrs. Basilie Frankweiler, like stuff like that, where it's not just that you're living free of adults is that you get like all the pleasures of the adult world. Like the Uh, peanuts were kind of just like in a playroom, right? Like, were they really out and about? I don't know. Um, (laughs) so yeah, so I really was like, oh my God, like what would life be like if I got to like go to a museum or run around a hotel by myself? Like I was very, that was a huge point of fantasy. Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't need winged dragons. Like I just want to go to a city alone. <laughs> that was your winged dragon. Yeah, because oh, you were you grew up in Iowa, right? Dubuque. And so yeah. sure, this New York City 
uh, fantasy makes sense. Um, in the email you, that you sent before we spoke, you, and I appreciate this, noted books that you did not love, <laughs> which included Anne of Green Gables and Little House on the Prairie. Why didn't those fly? Um, those were books that I was told were like good books for me to read. Like here's a wholesome story of like a girl who you're supposed to identify with or like a family whose values seem mm. like what our family's values might be. Like I, they, I, I hated them because I felt they were encouraged. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that like, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that that is just like, I have forever been like a contrarian type. And if my family or my mother in particular was like, I loved these when I was a girl, I was like, nope, next. Sure. Um, and so, you know, that was like a real point of don't make me read Anne of Green Gables. Don't make me read Emily of New Moon. Like these series that were like anything, anyone wearing like, like multiple petticoats and stuff like, <laughs> yeah. and like trying to, trying to play like in a field with multiple petticoats on. I was like, eh, next. Mm, no. Um, I want to read about like girls and boys running around in the art museum. Like it was like a very early and it's hard to say whether that is a thing that is part of me, like where I, there was an innate thing that has part of me that has been like, oh, this is what I want for my life. Or if I really just enjoyed those stories more and then that shaped my vision for what I wanted from adulthood. But you will not be surprised to learn I live nowhere near a prairie and have never owned a petticoat. Right. Or a bonnet. <laughs> yes. No bonnets. That's good. Ever. <laughs> yeah. You don't remember what you've read in junior high. I don't remember junior high either. I think that's kind of normal. It's a traumatic time. Completely. Most of us. Um, yeah. And not really much about high school either. Like there's a few things that kind of came to mind. Um, but like truly I was just like, I mean, I remember a lot of the magazines I read in high school, but I like actually cannot, when I really search my, my memory cannot think of specific books that, I mean, I know I read, but like nothing that I feel like, you know, really stands out as life changing, sadly. Right. <laughs> Well, I, you know, at that point in your life, your life is changing every day. <laughs> so maybe yeah. you can only take so much. Um, okay. There were two that you suggested maybe you read in high school-ish. One was the philosophy of Andy Warhol. <laughs> <laughs> so my best friend in high school, shout out to Bridget, um, was and is an artist and like had like a, you know, this is probably very like... 13 years old, 14 years old, right around the time we became friends. She was just like all about Andy Warhol and what was happening in the factory and like learning about like, like just like that, that, you know, movement. And I remember her reading this book and like, it's like, a, it's funny to think about it now. It feels very internet-y when I remember this book and maybe that's why mm -hmm. I remember it, you know, just kind of like random collections of thoughts and here's a dispatch from a party. And it, it is like, I don't know. And I haven't picked this book up in years to be clear, but I, in my memory, it is sort of like the way I would later read blogs or like zines um, or things where people are just, it is definitely public. They're collecting these bits of their lives to be consumed. And mm -hmm. it's, it's not like it's a journal, but it feels like, you know, the, there's not a narrative structure here. Like right. I'm not trying to make a point I mean, I'm maybe trying to make a minor point within this sentence, but with the work overall, I'm not. I'm trying to convey a moment and a, you know, just a general sense of 
what my life is like or what my philosophy is like. And so I, um, that does stand out to me as something I read as a teenager. Like I'm pretty sure she read it and gave it to me. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the subtitle of that is from A to B and back again. And at first I read that and thought you had made a typo and that it was supposed to be from A to Z and back again. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not. It's from A to B, which, you know, would sort of explain his um, approach of just like glimpses, a snippet here, a snippet there. It's not a narrative. You know, we don't get all the way to the end. Um, Yes. Yeah. And my friend and I also loved it because her name is Bridget, which starts with B. And it's like from A to B and back again. It's just us. That's all we, you know, like we were obsessed with each other. So, and remain obsessed with each other. So there's like something I, I, I was positive. I did not mistype that title because we love, we love that about it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, another interesting book on your list from around that time is the electric Kool-Aid acid test (laughs) (laughs) by Tom Wolfe, which by the way is, I think it was on Amazon described as a nonfiction novel. Yeah. I mean, I think that it stands out to me because it was really the first, I think it's the first work of narrative nonfiction that I can remember reading beyond the length of a magazine article, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and I mean, and it came at a time when we were, God, like, I'm so embarrassed, like making a list of things that felt culturally relevant to me at that age. I'm like, white men, white men, white men, white men from the sixties, white men from the seventies, more white men from the sixties. Like, it's really like, you know, when you think about like, access to culture and things like that. Like if someone, I just, sometimes I wish someone had popped up and been like, you know, who else is doing really interesting, like, you know, narrative essays. Sure. Zora Neale Hurston. She's got a whole book about, you know what I mean? Like I really like, like there was, it was, it's such a symptom I feel like of being um, like a, like an old millennial and not having like great, like the kind of full cultural access that I feel like the internet provides now. And also, um, you know, just not having like developed a real consciousness around what I was consuming and what it meant. But I loved, I mean, like, we just like, we loved the idea of psychedelic drugs. Mm-hmm. We loved the idea of like, <laughs> of like being free on the road and like, just like running around and getting into trouble, but like not in a, like our classmates were like getting drunk in fields behind barns and stuff. And we were like, that is so dumb. Um, <laughs> we were, we were like, what sounds really cool is to like, you know, take a bunch of mind expanding drugs and take a road trip, which to be fair, we never did. Mm -hmm. Um, but like, I think that, you know, like whatever I roll to the moon, like on the road and like the electric Kool-Aid acid test were books that we thought were very cool. I'm like so ashamed to even be saying this. Um, (laughs) but I think that because of this fundamental, like longing for freedom and some kind of like, you know, explosive experience coupled with like the cultural messages that, like filtered through about like, what is a counterculture and like the way that nostalgia was working at that time. Like, I don't even know how we would have, I mean, we also, you know, my friend Bridget as well, like we would have come to those books like together. Um, And also, I mean, I went to a high school where even in the advanced placement classes for in English, we didn't really read it. They were not challenging on like a literary level. We were not reading. I think we read one William Faulkner novel when I was like a senior in high school. And it was like, okay, everyone brace yourselves. We've like worked up to this point, which is like kind of fair. And also (laughs) like, you know, that is, that is literally the only thing I can remember being interested in or challenged by in a school environment when I was a teenager. Wow. William Faulkner. Light in August. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. 
Um, you know, you mentioned um, magazines earlier and then zines um, just a bit ago. What magazines were you reading in junior high? Do you remember? Oh, my God. Well, I don't know about junior high. Definitely, like, in high school. Um, sorry, this is so much about my friend Bridget, but, like, so much of my media consumption as a teen, I feel like, was about the people who I was in like proximity to. Sure. So she had a, she had a Rolling Stone subscription and I had a spin subscription and we would like trade, um, you know, like we would each read whatever came and then we'd, we'd swap. Um, well, then you were but then I some, also, some really good writing. Yeah. Like, okay. I mean, I also, I also got mother Jones at a very young age, um, probably a little bit later in high school. And I also got the nation, um, which were, those were the only magazines that came to our house other than Sports Illustrated and The Ligorian, which is a Catholic magazine. Um, so uh, I was not like very interested in the kind of like household subscriptions. But yeah. yeah, I don't even know. Maybe The Nation was like a Christmas gift from my like one liberal uncle. I can't remember. But um, I do remember reading in, I think it was in Mother Jones, Eric Schlosser's piece that was like would later become Fast Food Nation about oh, yeah. like meat processing and yeah. like, you know, feeling very affected by that as like, you know, socially important, but also riveting and narrative in its way. Um, and, and yeah. And then also like, you know, those magazines, those kind of like classic lefty magazines were the foundation of how I started to be critical of like what I was being taught in history class. So, you know, there was like a big thing about standard oil and, and about like leaded, petroleum and unleaded mm. petroleum and the nation. I remember reading it and just being like, holy cow, this is so interesting. How come history class in school is never once touched on this, which is still an experience I have when I read books yeah. and read things that I'm just like, how am I only learning this now is a, a consistent reading feeling that was, I think, fairly new at that age. Okay. I, I am feeling like so, like truly when I made that list for you, I was like, ugh, it's all men. It's truly all men, like well, up to a certain point. <laughs> which is not surprising considering where you grew up and, you know, your one influence, <laughs> Bridget. Um, yeah. And the fact that you still, to this day, walk into a bookstore and some of the first books you see and the ones that still get the most display time and viewability are white male writers. I mean, it's the majority is still that it's slowly changing and becoming more vibrant, but, um, that's still the case. It's true. And I just like, I, it's hard for me to not feel sad about like, who would I be if someone had introduced me to like, you know, a broader range of perspectives at an earlier age. Like I truly think about that a lot is like, you know, what would my politics have been? What would my idea of what was possible had been mm -hmm. if I had, yeah. Anyway. Yep. All right. Tangent. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> college. Mm-hmm. What did you study in college? Oh, I studied journalism. Okay. I have only ever wanted to be a journalist. I went to an undergraduate journalism program where um, the, the four years included, like, the first two years were mostly focused on kind of a classic liberal arts degree stuff. And then the last two years were a lot of doing journalism in the field, working for the local paper, writing features, taking, okay. you know, design and production classes. So in a sense, I feel like I went to a liberal arts school for two years and then I went to like a trade school for journalism. Mm -hmm. um, so my college reading was like 50% like what the, what the like liberal arts part 
of the University of Missouri deemed like canonical. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the second half was like deep dives into what uh, journalists deemed canonical. (laughs) Like that is really like what I was reading. Like, um, and, and, you know, like, I think like a lot of college students, pretty much all the reading I was doing at, with, with a couple of exceptions during those years was for school. I was not like, you know, reading novels on top of my school reading, frankly. And now that you explain that, I definitely see the split um, (laughs) in, in the books, um, in the list that you sent me beforehand, there's definitely a, a, um, canonical section and then a journalistic, um, you know, examples of different kinds of journalism section, um, Joan Didion and, um, David Foster Wallace and whatnot. So, do you want to start with, um, like, Beloved, Toni Morrison, classic? Yeah, I mean, like, a classic, like, I mean, a work of unimpeachable genius yeah. um, that I think felt all the more revelatory for me because I read it as part of a, like, you know, 20th century classics type course. Um, hmm. And it just, like, I mean, it just stands out on so many levels. It's like, you know, it's funny because I... I haven't read it in so many years and I like can't even, I could not even tick off for you like a really like, you know, articulate review of what makes it so great. But I will tell you that like the feeling it evoked in me, um, you know, the kind of like the empathy and sadness and like expansiveness that it provoked in me is like, it was like the first thing I thought of when I was like, what is a book that kind of blew my mind wide open in college? Mm -hmm. And Definitely not a white male writer. And I think that that is like something to do with it. I think that like, you know, um, and, and I, I thought a lot about, you know, all the things that she said about, um, you know, not attempting to translate her experience for people like me. Right. Like she's just like, I'm writing what I think is like, you know, a story that like stands not even I think I'm writing a story that stands alone and it's like brilliance and does not need to be contextualized as like, okay, let me handhold my like presumed white reader through this path of otherness. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, like I write for people who have shared my experiences first and foremost. And I think like there is something about, um, there's something about that where I felt like I was like, Oh, I am really like having an experience that, again, feels outside of my lived experience, feels outside of like a textbook reading experience I had when I was much younger, feels outside of kind of like the canonical male literature that I was reading and the kind of counter canonical male literature Mm -hmm. that I was reading, you know, like um, it. Yeah. And um, and I still think that like like some of the things that she does with voice, um, I, I I that is one of those terms that in the context of like the journalism school side of my college education got a lot of conversation, but like, um, it was, it was really hard to kind of make that idea stick like for a relatively young writer. And just like, she is just a master of owning her voice and owning the voices of her characters. And like, I don't know, I just, I, I I feel like actually it's difficult for me to be articulate because I'm just effusive. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're doing a great job. Um, yeah, it's you, I mean, and I can, um, I can relate to your experience of reading that too. I also haven't read it since college and I too, I have a kind of a rough estimation of the plot, but it's that, it's that place 
emotionally that it took me to that is what is what I connect with still and I still get some of those feelings even when I just think about um that read that definitely was a reading experience I feel like some books right you, you just it's a book that you read and maybe it's a good story or whatever and some books are actually an experience and that that's definitely one of those yeah and I um and you know like I said earlier that I did not do a ton of reading outside what was required for my coursework. But after I read that, I mean, I went and immediately read The Bluest Eye and mm. I read Jazz and like, you know, I mean, I can't remember the exact order, but I, and I didn't do the complete catalog, but like, you better believe that I like took the time to follow that thread deeper. Yeah. Uh, the God of Small Things by Arundhati <laughs> Roy. I think I read that for the same class. Mm-hmm. Also haven't read it in a really long time. Mm-hmm. But, and I, and I, and this is something, I mean, I rem- remember even less about that novel. Um, but, uh, oh man, that's, but a, yeah, like, that's a complicated one. There was, that was set in India and there were all sorts of, there's like the set of twins at the center of it and yes, all kinds of, of characters and aunts and uncles and someone visiting, I think. And I mean, there was a lot going on in that little book. Yeah. And I think that like, so one of the few things I did remember is like this story, like, having two people at the heart of a novel is something that I continue to love and really appreciate when I think about books that, um, that I, you know, I mean, not exclusively, but like that is a trope that I really like the ability to kind of show the impact of uh, a political experience of a culture of like a family experience of trauma on two different individuals who experience it in different ways remains something that I think is pretty unique to fiction in terms of the ability to fully explore that. And so it's funny that you mentioned that in like the first breath is like, these are the things I remember about that uh-huh. book. Cause that's what I was about to say is like, I actually, in terms of what happens to these individuals, other than like n- remembering where it is set and remembering mm-hmm. that again, it felt like I was learning about things beyond my experience. I just love that idea of like fiction as a way into the fact that you can be sitting right next to a person and and even be so intimate as to be in the same family unit as them to be like the closest you think you could possibly be to another soul Mm -hmm. and have a different experience of what's happening around you is just like, I will never get tired of exploring that fact. Yeah. And they, it was fraternal twins. And so there was, it was both a man and a woman, Mm -hmm. um, which I, I liked too because their experiences were automatically so different. Yeah, of course. And it's like, you know, how do you, um, it's like having a control group, right? Like everything in our lives is the same, except for this fact of gender. And like, you know, I mean, there's also, there's no accounting for, like I said, just like um, the subjectiveness of each individual experience. But like, I think that it was, it made such an impact because I was, you know, I think at the time I read that I was, I was certainly identifying with all of the tenets of feminism. I was not calling myself a feminist or kind of like overtly associating myself with that word. Um, And so maybe there's something else going on with that too of like, okay, like actually um, this is a really helpful way for me to make sense of these things that I feel deep down, but have not articulated in a political way yet. Sure. Okay. Speaking of feminism and feeling it deep down, the next one on the list is The Handmaid's Tale. I, you know, I don't normally like go through the list this um, specifically, but you're just taking me right there. So I'm going to, I'm going to do it. Um, I mean, yeah. 
Yeah, I feel like this is um, maybe it was easier for this to come to mind because it is like so in the culture right now. I, um, I had I had to really pause when I was like, oh, yeah, I remember reading that and, and what age I was. And, you know, I remember it being very much associated with like a burgeoning feminist identity. Um, and then I was like, is this standing out more because it is so at the forefront right now? And mm-hmm. the answer is like, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do remember, um, you know, especially because like what is you know, there's obviously a lot going on in that novel, but like the way that it is so, um, you know, overtly drawing this line from like religious oppression to political oppression, um, and religious oppression to like cultural oppression. I'm just like, as a baby, never identified as Catholic, like, (laughs) you know, like atheist, I was like, yes, I like, I will love, I love an indictment of a system that I have always (laughs) thought was bad. And I know that that book is not specifically about, Catholicism, but, you know, I also read it at the, um, you know, during Bush's first term, which was like coincided almost exactly with my, um, years as an undergrad. Um, and like, you know, it's hard to really overstate the degree to which, um, religion really felt like it was being used at the time as an excuse for, um, oppression. And I think that it's funny, like thinking about this you know, another different and arguably way, way more oppressive political environment, religion is not at the forefront in the way it was then. And, and I'm also many more years removed from my own religious upbringing, which I was so Mm -hmm. resentful of. And so to read that book during the Bush era, when I was just starting to identify as a feminist, like, uh, you know, recently like moved out of my, you know, religious family's home I think that it's just like there's a confluence of things happening there, which is like, of course, this novel was important to me, you know, and and that's why I kind of like this prompt um, of of your show of like talk about books and the moments in which you read them, because, you know, I don't think that that book would appear on a list of what are the best books I've ever read. But if you talk about impact and timing. Right. Definitely. Right. Yep. Again, the, like the, the experience of the book, not necessarily just the book itself. Yeah, I'm sure mm-hmm. it was. Um, that was like the perfect like catalyst situation to propel you to where you ended up going. Yeah, and I mean, and I, I loved how she um, was very explicit about how nothing was included in the book that hadn't happened at some point in history. You know, to some group of people by another, mm-hmm. and. Um, And I think that, you know, again, for where my politics were at and also having a journalistic sensibility and respecting things that were rooted in fact, Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yep. Um, The last books on the list for college are, I think, more journalism oriented, but also just fantastic fantastic reads. I love all of these. Um, let's start with, I'm going to do these a little bit out of order. Let's start with Feminism is for Everybody by Bell Hooks. Um, yeah, this was not a four class read. Okay. Um, I would say that probably around like at the beginning, maybe of my senior year is when I started identifying as a feminist. Um, and it was recommended to me by and might not have even been overtly recommended to me by a friend at that time. It was, it was maybe something I just saw on her shelf and was like, Hmm, hmm, that seems like a one-on-one book. I should get that. Um, and in fact it is. And in fact, it's like, I should have gotten it. It is a great point of entry. 
um, into like, what does it mean to like live in the process of being a feminist and live in the process of feminism as like a flawed human in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. And I think like, like I said, I'd sort of ideologically, um, you know, not been a million miles away from feminism, but hadn't really used the term until I got looped into working on a fundraiser with, um, some women who did, who I thought were frankly, just like the coolest, huh. like most self-assured, like most like, you know, like, um, not ignoring the political reality, but also like, I don't know. I just really was like, I want to be a part of this club and I would never argue that feminism is a club, but that is like on a gut level, mm-hmm. what it felt like. And, um, those women are all still very close to me and are still people I admire very greatly. And so when I saw this book, um, on one of their shelves, I was like, I got to get it. Mm. And I think it really did help me to say like, oh yeah, I, everything in this book is something that I have agreed with for a very long time. It doesn't matter that I haven't used this term before because guess what? Check, check, check. Uh, (laughs) you meet these criteria. And, um, anyway, so I, I still think it is a, is a really classic one-on-one book for, um, people who are like, maybe I want to call myself a feminist. (laughs) Yeah. And it's nice. It's short and it's, um, bell hooks does a nice job. I think of, uh, like writing about the experience of being a feminist, not just here's what feminism is, right. It's not just a, like, it's not like a textbook or an outline. It's, um, I don't know. There's, there's more to grab onto. There's a, like a, a visual, you understand what this might look like and feel like. Yeah. And, and like I said, like this idea to this day, like my feminist, my favorite feminist writers are acknowledging that it is not something you like sit back and think about. It's something you Mm -hmm. do and practice usually imperfectly. Um, and I think that it, it, it was very important that, you know, bell hooks provided that framework at a really early stage in Mm -hmm. me identifying as a feminist, because I think that you know, I could have been introduced to it in a lot of ways that felt more like, you know, that did feel more overtly like a club, like, okay, if you do these things, you're in, and then you just stay in. And if you don't do these things, then you're out and you just stay out as opposed to, you know, the complicated mess that it is because the world is a complicated mess. Yeah. And we are complicated. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, David Foster Wallace, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. (laughs) Um, is this the one about the cruise that it takes its title from that, but basically it is an anthology of his magazine nonfiction work. Um, and in the way that like consider the lobster's essays, which is also a fave, this is just like, I mean, and, and, and I remain a huge fan of magazine editors assigning reported nonfiction or kind of like essayistic reported nonfiction Mm -hmm. to novelists. Um, I could not care less about David Foster Wallace's fiction. I've tried. I have failed to gain an interest in it. (laughs) Um, I think that his nonfiction is great. (laughs) Um, And I think that especially uh, at the time at which I read it, it felt a little different than um, some of the like narrative features I was reading that were kind of like being published contemporaneously in places like, you know, GQ and Esquire. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, the, the, it takes a title from 
the piece that originally ran in Harper's about him going on a cruise called a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. And, you know, like there's a lot about David Foster Wallace that like doesn't hold up in my opinion. (laughs) Um, And there's a lot about like, especially about like the journalism that I read and loved at that age that I was really reverential of. Um, I wish I could time travel back and just remind myself of the sheer time and resources that these writers had to produce such incredible work. Um, Because I think that, especially in journalism school, you're taught to venerate, um, you know, I mean, like uh, some of the, like the classic Joan Didion collections are on that list as well. The White Album and Slouching Toward Bethlehem, which again, I would never, I I mean, I think that these, these are works that hold up for sure. But also like, you know, when you consider the, the fact that like, she had to only focus exclusively on one of these essays at a time. And she was like flown there. And it was not a question of whether she would be able to make rent if she didn't do six other things while she was also reporting the story, right. I think is just like, cannot be overstated for people who are reading that and who are holding their work in this era of journalism, like to that standard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so yeah, and there's something that feels like, nostalgically cozy about like, Oh my God, like what could be possible in, um, in the world of journalism today, if the resources were what they were, are now what they were then. I mean, and, and there are a few people who get resources like that, like literally probably like can count them on one hand. Um, (laughs) but you know, there's definitely a downside to, to venerating like that, these collections of work, which I definitely spent a lot of time venerating when I was in college. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So, so, so when you, when you talk about these books by, you know, David Foster Wallace and Joan Didion and there's Anne Fetterman, which we haven't even touched yet, the spirit catches you and you fall down, which is her covering a, um, among family, uh, parents and a young a baby, I think, or a young, a young girl. Yeah. She's like a toddler with, okay. um, epilepsy. Right. And the, um, and they're, how they want to treat the child with their religious backgrounds and cultural understanding of what a seizure even means and and how to treat, how you're supposed to treat it. And then the Western doctors trying to do their thing and everyone's just talking over each other and whatever. Um, So were there anything in these stories? I mean, the way you've been talking about them has been very um, uh, like, like focusing on the craft of of the content versus the content itself. Um, were there any stories, say, that David Foster Wallace covered or that Joan Didion covered that stand out to you because of the the topic that you and maybe it is that the Anne Fetterman, um story that that caught you somehow and that I don't know shaped how you felt about something or thought about something? Yeah, I mean, I think that the 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 Fadiman book in particular, I think, is noteworthy because, I mean, first of all, just like the the investment of time. I mean, like, I think she reported that book for almost a decade. Um, And again, if I were to go back and read it, I would probably be like, oh my God, here are a million things that I can find, like, you know, problematic to use an easy crutch word um, Mm -hmm. about, (laughs) about this, this work. But, um, but, you know, I think one thing it really taught me was that you remember me saying that, like, I love a novel with that can show you like essentially like how subjective the human experience is and can show you how like multiple points of view on the same occurrence can be just so dramatically different. And like, 
you know, this, that is true in terms of fiction that I love. And this is a a nonfiction example where, um, I, I can't remember if it's literally every other chapter, but you really do go back and forth between the perspective of the Hmong community and the family of this little girl, and then the perspective of the, um, the sort of like medical community in, you know, the American medical community, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, and she does this, she does it very deftly wherein like when you're in one moment, you are fully like, how can these horrible people on the other side Mm. even be suggesting this? Um, don't they care about this little girl at all? Like, how can they be like so ignorant? And then, you know, you're in the next chapter and you feel something similar, you know, and even though you're kind of in, in the other camp as it were. And, um, I don't think it's, you know, probably accurate to reduce, um, that story to a binary. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's been long enough that I've read it, that I'm like, maybe there are dissenting views on both sides, but I do really remember that ability to kind of vividly inhabit multiple experiences of the same thing, or Mm -hmm. like, or to try to, to try to answer the same question with two really different sets of tools, um, and different perspectives. And I really, um, and, and to do it in a nonfiction book, I really just like, I, it felt so singular to me. Um, and it also just like, I don't know. I mean, she wasn't a lot of the, um, the Didion, just to talk about Joan Didion and mm-hmm. David Foster Wallace again for one second is like, you know, Joan Didion is kind of cold and removed. Like what does Joan yeah. Didion love and feel passionate about? Like truly, you know, I mean, I think that that comes out, um, you know, especially in some of her more recent works, like, I feel like I can answer that question better. But in these, like, the stuff from the 60s and 70s, yeah. I'm like, you know, she's she's at a remove and she's a little bit like, she's not looking down her nose, but like, kind of, like, almost. Um, and, and David Foster Wallace is like, always a little removed and mocking, you know, and <laughs> that is a delight to read. Um, even when he's mocking himself, there is this sense of like, I'm not in it with these people. Um, and, and, uh, you know, journalism school was very much about like, how do you be an objective fly on the wall to get all these great details and then, you know, and then put them into this narrative that you're writing. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, and Anne Fadiman is like in the background of this piece as my recollection is that she's not front and center in this story in any way. Although I could be wrong about that. It's been a long time. My recollection though, is that it feels like no one is being mocked. Everyone is being taken very seriously and being like, you know, um, given, given an opportunity to kind of like sincerely show like all the factors at play in their lives and their like whole beings. Um, and so I think that it felt important for that reason as a, as a contrast to some of these other things that were, um, frankly, maybe more fun to read. Um, (laughs) but, but, you know, just like lacked, lacked a little bit of, um, empathy or acknowledgement of how, um, you can't just have like one source or one perspective and pretend that you're even getting close to a whole picture. No. And when I, you know, read like a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, um, even though I'm getting objective information about what this cruise is like, I also know very well what David Foster Wallace thinks of this cruise. Uh, oh yeah. And I don't, get that with Joan Didion. I feel like it's, it's very sterile. Yeah. You, I mean, I'm trying to think of some counter examples. I mean, I think, yeah, yeah, I mean, but by and large, that's what I would say is that like, 
You know, there's not a lot of skin in the game with yeah. either of them, though. Like, you know what David Foster Wallace thinks. And, you know, I wouldn't say Anne Fadiman's skin is in the game in terms of this um, this little girl and what to do about her health and, like, that question. You know, she's not front and center intervening and whatever. Um, and I think some, in a way, like, a lot of these works show how, like, the trends in narrative nonfiction have really shifted toward letting the writer be a part of that and admit some subjectivity. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, and I, and, and again, like I, um, you know, I don't know that any of this would hold up to like, you know, some kind of comparative lit thesis level scrutiny, you know, I mean, I think, I think that, um, what is important though, is like that, that's kind of what I took from, from that Anne Fadiman book that felt different of, of just like, you know, there's a way to be a reporter, to be writing something that is nonfiction, that is narrative and well-crafted without, feeling like you're you're putting the people you're writing about in a petri dish mm-hmm. and like like looking down into them or on them <laughs> right yeah that's a that's a good um metaphor actually petri dish um okay early adulthood you've got uh, i don't know like eight or nine books listed <laughs> but um i guess i was most interested in um homegoing by okay Yadassi. <laughs> And, yes. And um, I got to say, sorry, I have to cut you off and be like, I feel like I really took some liberties with like early adulthood because homegoing's from like 2013. I'm like, I was in my 30s. Anyway, go on. <laughs> okay. um, I just I just mean like everything after college is all in that list. So sorry, yeah. go on. No, when you're in your 40s, your 30s is early adulthood. Believe me. Um, <laughs> definitely how it all works out. So um, and I feel like this is where we get besides like Arundhati Roy, um, which was back in college, you've got some um, more varied, you know, authors from different cultures and countries and very different perspectives, like um, Carmen Murray and Machado, and, um, and yeah, yeah, Jossie. So, uh, you know, I don't want to tell you where to start, but... <laughs> I mean, I'm happy to talk about homegoing. I okay. think homegoing is, like, you know, a, a standout of the past five years in terms of novels that I can't stop thinking about okay. that have really not just like done something that I think is such a huge achievement, um, you know, structurally, narratively, um, but also like have, ha- I don't know, it's had a really big impact about how I think about my life. And it like, I think about it when I read the news and things oh. like that. Um, okay. So, so yeah, so uh, it will not surprise you to learn that it begins with sisters. Um, and, uh, one of them is, uh, sold into slavery, um, and ends up being an enslaved person in America. The other, um, stays behind in West Africa and, um, in Ghana. And, uh, then the book, let me see if I can explain this clearly. Um, in alternating chapters, you follow the descendants of each of these two sisters. And um, each chapter skip, basically skips a generation. And so it is essentially, in many ways, like a book of short stories. You meet a new character every chapter. Um, but sometimes there is some continuity. Like they might have a living older relative who we met two chapters ago when we were last with this family or this side of the family. Um, but mostly she is, you know, doing the short story work of introducing you to a character and giving you 
enough that you feel connected to them mm-hmm. and that and advancing the story in the span of like the one chapter before we hop to the next person. So that alone, I'm just like, I just get a real tingle when I think about mm-hmm. like, I love, I love things that are, um, that are genre bending, but maybe don't advertise themselves as such. And like, when you say something like that about modern fiction, people are like, Oh my God, like the PowerPoints and visit from the goon squad. And it's like that, I like visit from the goon squad, but I think that is like, that is a really kind of obvious way to think about, you know, genre bending in, um, in fiction. And I think what she is doing is like, you know, short stories couch within the structure of a novel, um, in such a way that when you get to the end of the book, and this is not a spoiler, I mean, you're, you're then at the present day, um, uh, people who would be our contemporaries and, you know, very close to my contemporaries age-wise. And you realize that, you know, you as the reader are omniscient. I mean, you know more about this character's background and history than she will ever know. Like, and she she does not have access to the information. I'm getting like a little choked up just talking about it. And I really just, maybe it hit me at a time when I was, you know, I, I have a couple of living grandparents still, which is wild for someone who is 36, you know, but it really made me think about trying to talk to my living relatives about like, you know, not in the sense of I want to do a full family genealogy, but like, you know, in the true sense of like, what are the stories that mm-hmm. I don't, I cannot see of my own background. And then, you know, to take that a step further, like, you know, having access to your history as a privilege mm-hmm. um, and and the fact that like, you know, for some corners of my family, there would be like a paper trail and there would be some information there if I really wanted to hunt for it. And um, understanding that as like a facet of what it means to be systematically disconnected from your your people and your like yeah. birthright and your, and you know, not even on like a level of like resources. I mean, I understand like before I read this book, I was well aware of things like the slave trade and like redlining and you know what I mean? Like ways in which like very, in very clear ways, you know, resources are stolen from people. (laughs) But I, this book really in a way that I don't think that any reporting could have Hmm. made that kind of like, this is how systems of oppression separate people from their own story. And like, as someone who privileges story, like whose life is books and Mm -hmm. writing, I just like, Man, it just like destroyed me in the best way, and I I I could talk your face off all day long about how much I love that book. But I think it is just brilliant, and it was well recognized. I mean, I it definitely like won a few important awards, but in like the Anne Friedman Book Awards of like the decade, it is like right up there for so many reasons. And also, it is just like engaging. I mean, it's a great book, you know. I mean, like aside from all of this stuff, I'm like, it's a great book. Sure. (laughs) So. Okay. Okay. I'm just like, I'm like sweating now. (laughs) So you said earlier that it even affects the way you read the news. Can you give an example? Yeah. I think that like that thing I was saying about understanding how systematic oppression works and how like generational wealth works and things like that, like how, how certain people end up like divorced from resources and privilege, right? Like that is a thing that kind of crops up in a daily way in the news. 
And this book just not, it's, it's wrong to say it gives me like a human perspective on that, mm-hmm. but it, it has prompted me to ask like, okay, these are the measurable things we're talking about, right? Like when we talk about police brutality and problems in the criminal justice system, a hundred percent, we are talking about things that are measurable. How many bodies are in prison? Like how many people are killed by cops? Mm-hmm. Um, what, you know, like how many times did an officer just charge a weapon against, you know, a person of what race, right? Like these are like the things that we can track in journalism. And I think that this book really helped me mm-hmm. push a little deeper and ask questions about like, okay, when I see a story like that, what is the story of that, right? Like what right. is sort of like, what is happening in a, in a real like, geologic time kind of way um, to both get us here, like all the stories that the people involved are telling and not being told, and what is going to be this story in six generations when it's not literally about what did a cop do with a gun, but like, Mm -hmm. what are the people who are going to be here way in the future? How is this going to affect them? And I think like, I'm not someone prone to like, I don't know, staying up late at night thinking about like the fate of the world in six generations, you know? I mean, I'm someone who is like, what is my next goal? What is the news of the moment? Like, I'm like Billy goading my way up the hill. You know, I'm not like, I'm not like, what is at the very top? And, and I think that that's what I mean about how it, it has affected how I think about sure. the news. Yeah. Okay. Is there another one like that on the list that you want to cover? Otherwise, my next question is going to be, what are you reading right now? Well, I, I want to also give a shout out in, in a very different kind of way to um, Rachel Cusk's outline trilogy, um, which I think is just masterful. Mm -hmm. Um, but because of like, again, like a kind of word nerd narrative nerd in me, I'm, I'm obsessed with how I can be so taken by these books that are not plotless, but like definitely not plot driven. They definitely do not have like a, you know, meet your narrator and, she's gone through this thing and now she's going to triumph and what, you know, like, like all of those kind of classic hallmarks are missing. And, um, it would be easy to write it off as like sort of series of vignettes. Um, but in fact, the books are about for me, uh, the way narrative is experienced in everyday life, Mm -hmm. which is to say, sometimes you're in your head and you're thinking about a memory and then you snap out of it to have a conversation with your partner while you make dinner. And then you're watching the news and this thing is happening on the news. And then your head is in that narrative space. And then, you know, Mm -hmm. you get on a work call and then your, your head is in the space of my head now is in the space of our conversation Mm -hmm. and the way that that feels like to be in a human body and experience all these different narratives Mm. through your own perspective um, is in my mind, essentially what she's doing in those books. And um, it's made me want to go back and read Virginia Woolf again, because I think that that's like a really easy to point to like antecedent. But also, you know, it wasn't until I got three, you know, to the third novel that I was like, oh, man, like, actually, even though we only know a couple of things about the narrator that are like, frankly, not that interesting. We've gotten to know her so well because of what she chooses to listen to and how she chooses to characterize the stories of the people she meets, which are all filtered through her as Mm -hmm. we read them. And like the absolute brilliance of like using that as a way to paint a portrait of uh, this narrator, almost like, you know, in, in, um, in absence or something like that. Right. Uh, I thought was just like, I don't know. I was like, God damn it. Like threw the book across the room. It was so good. Um, so yeah, so I, I don't know. I've been thinking about them a lot as it relates to 
the internet and like all these kind of like overlapping narratives that we're slapped with constantly yeah. every day. And, and what we choose to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and what we hear, right? Like, what do you hear in a conversation or in a news story versus what does someone else hear from it? And I don't, I don't even mean like, what is your political opinion? I mean, like, literally, what is the fact that you focus on that you can recall two minutes later mm-hmm. um, and how different that can be person to person? So that's another that's another one lately that I have been all about. Hmm. Well, it's been it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I've been I'm like, oh, my God, I got to figure out what I actually read in high school now. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it kind of fun to go back and think of your life that way? It is. I'm going to think of like five important things as soon as we hang up. I know it. That's just how it works. That was Anne Friedman, a journalist, podcast host, and newsletter sender. Sign up to receive the Anne Friedman Weekly at annfriedman.com. It's full of great things to read. Anne is also working on a book with her friend Amina Tussaud. It's called Big Friendship, and it will be published by Simon & Schuster in 2020. Head to the show notes section of thespineshow.com and click on episode 17 to see a list of all of the books and writers Anne mentions during our conversation, as well as links to some of her latest articles. I'm Gail Marie. Thank you for listening. Keep reading and let it shape how you think, love, and live.